in primary school, I actually experienced the first incidence of bullying. But I didn't put it down to that because you know you're very young, you don't know what it is. So um, I would take the school bus every morning and I would be the last to board the bus because I stayed the nearest to school. So by the time I get on, then I'll be like, oh, there are like actually no more seats left except at the back. So the girls will be very mean. I, re- I remember very clearly like um, they took a long ruler and then they, so the five of them will squeeze into the space for three seats. And then they'll take a long ruler and measure, pretend to like measure the remaining two seats and they'll be like, Cheryl, is this enough space for you? I mean, it's all fun and yeah, but then I think at the back of my mind, a seat was really planted. You know, about like, okay, why are these people making fun of you? But then I didn't let it get to me yet. Welcome to Screwed Up Moments, the podcast where it's okay to fail and it's okay to try again. I'm your host, Danny. When I was growing up and working my way through my schooling days, I was always one of the bigger kids in the classroom, not for the lack of exercise or regular physical activity, but more so due to a fondness for sugary drinks and processed snacks. And even though I was kind of tall and there were relatively heavier kids in my school, I was most definitely objectively overweight. That much was certain and made all the more clear when I was always included in my school's trim and fit or tough program since a young age. Now, to be honest, the program itself didn't really bother me that much in the beginning. While it was a hassle to get up earlier so that we could fulfill our mandatory pre-class exercises, it was always somewhat reassuring to do it in the midst of others like me. Heavier kids, chubby kids, bigger kids. In that sense, there was a camaraderie a special kind of bond, one where we would egg each other on during our morning runs or tease each other when we put on weight during the weekly weigh-ins. Instead, what bothered me was how the tough program was perceived to the rest of the school, mostly as that weird club with all the sweaty fat kids that no one wanted to be around. If being fat alone wasn't enough to make a teenager overly self-conscious, then getting them all sweaty before classes started would get them over the line for sure. And so, that was me when I was a kid. Shy, insecure, overweight, self-conscious, lacking confidence, and desperate for the validation and approval of my peers. And as I grew up, I, as I'm sure many neurotic weight-obsessed teenagers can attest to, tried many things to change my physical appearance, from milder ones such as diet and exercise, to more extreme ones like binging and purging or starving for days on end. In fact, I remember a short period in my life when I would literally walk to where my friends wanted to meet. In most cases, it was 20 minutes to half an hour, but the longest I've ever walked was probably for about 75 minutes. And all I had to eat for that day was just a single solitary apple. 
The reason why I'm sharing all of this is because I'm acutely aware of the mental roller coaster that overweight people or just weight obsessive people in general go through. Everything from shame to blaming yourself to disappointment to insecurity to self hate, and finally to that idea, that crippling, emotionally poisonous idea that if I could just lose some weight, people will like me and I will be happy. Thankfully, I have moved past that period of my life, mostly because of my time during national service and some general discipline to exercise more regularly and moderate what I eat. However, the same can't be said about many others out there in society today, and it is truly saddening to learn of the lengths that some people go to just so that they can reach some number on a weighing scale. These are what I consider to be the extreme cases. And for today's episode, we will be listening to one such case with the story of Cheryl Tay, someone who has struggled with eating disorders for well over a decade. Actually, I started writing during my last, my final year in university. I've always liked her, so it's very strange because no one else in the family. Is as crazy. I mean, to them, it's like a car is just functional. It just gets you from point A to point B. But there's something beyond that that I, that I like. Um, so I joined the motoring club in university. And then uh, I did internships with car companies. So that's where I met like the media. Um, but when I graduated, I actually went to work corporate first. Like I was, I worked in Laurel. Like, um, and then I went to Swiss Hotel hotels and resorts to do um, regional PR. So it's very, very different. So I think after a few years of working for people and then in 2010, I decided that this is the time like I wanted to step out and do something on my own. So I was still all the while freelancing on the side. Like I was still like covering like Formula One, Formula Drift, uh, going to see MotoGP, go-karting, everything like I really enjoyed like life in the fast lane. And then, uh, so in 2010, I was like, okay, it's now or never. I mean, I don't regret stepping out. I think um, that that passion for cars and motorsports was actually what fueled me to find the courage to get out and pursue my own thing also. Yeah. It's hard not to be a little starry-eyed when talking to Cheryl. She is confident, expressive, boisterous even, and her resume reads like a list of passion projects fulfilled. Photographer, blogger, influencer, digital marketer, fitness enthusiast, and perhaps the most exciting of all, motorsports journalist. So being a motoring journalist and also like a motorsports photojournalist was really a dream come true because I always feel that you know if you can't be a racing driver then at least the next closest thing to being in it right is just being in the media because you are right there with them so you get to see the cars you get to hear the cars you get to speak to the driver so you're in the sport itself anyway like you have the best seats in the you house. get to drive new cars like cars that have yet to be launched and also like cars that I probably will never be able to afford in my life uh, these are like oh, oh my god behind an RA oh my god or like you know it's crazy and then 
we have also had like track experiences so you know imagine like driving an RAV10 like on the Sepang International Circuit that's crazy it's crazy it's mind blowing those years of covering Formula 1 um, in Singapore at Formula 1 I was like yes you know like you don't have to spend money to fly out right it's here and then uh, because Jessica Michibata was Jensen Button's girlfriend then so like she was like the princess of the paddock we were all, all the photographers we were just camp at one spot we will wait for her to like leave the paddock because we just want to take photos of her and then and then in Malaysia I went for the Malaysian Grand Prix uh, and she went to the same toilet as me you know? so I was like I came out washing my hair I was like oh my god but I didn't dare to talk to her I mean she smiled at me and I was like oh no I want a selfie oh, I, I don't dare and then she walked out I was like shit I mean it's very weird right how to ask people for like a selfie in a toilet but I was like She's just here. Oh my god. When you speak to the drivers and all that, right? They're actually people, normal people, you know, with very crazy jobs. I mean, it's still a job. It's still a profession, you know. They they are paid to race. You know, they have a job to do. So, when you speak to them, they are really, like, normal. They have feelings, they have emotions. So, when you speak to them, uh, some of them are genuinely very nice. Like, you can tell that they are very passionate about the sport. Or some are very jaded because of certain things in the sport. Uh, yeah, so... I thought that was like covering Formula 1 and meeting all these drivers was one of the highlights of my career then. However, the exciting life that Cheryl leads today belies a difficult past, one that haunted Cheryl ever since a young age. So in primary school, I actually experienced the first incidence of bullying but I didn't put it down to that because you know you're very young you don't know what it is so um, I would take the school bus every morning and I would be the last to board the bus because I stayed the nearest to school so by the time I get on then I'll be like oh there are like actually no more seats left except at the back so the girls will be very mean I, re- I remember very clearly like um, they took a long ruler and then they so the five of them will squeeze into the space for three seats and then they'll take a long ruler and measure pretend to like measure the remaining two seats and they'll be like Cheryl is this enough space for you so I call it like the walk of shame because you got to walk down the entire aisle of the bus and then I had no choice but to sit in the seat that they kept for me the double seat that they kept for me because otherwise there's nowhere else for me to sit they just intentionally I don't know how or what happened before I boarded the bus but maybe they got everybody to fill up the seats and then like those were left for me so that was my very first incident and then I don't know whether this is your era or not but we had the pink coloured uh, charity elephant called Charity I think I, I don't know I think he's still around like he was somewhere the other day in the news and I was like oh my god Charity is alive so um, Charity sounds like Charote and I love the colour pink so you know the elephant is plump and cute right and everything so they started calling me Charity so that was the next and then I was like I mean it's all fun and yeah but then I think at the back of my mind a seed was really planted you know about like okay why are these people making fun of you but then I didn't let it get to me yet I was still enjoying my I think at the age of 12 I was still enjoying my I wouldn't use the word fat lah, you know, um, maybe a bit meaty, a bit ro-ro. So that was 12, but it didn't bother me consciously. So I wasn't like like crying or very upset about it because I just took it and like, okay lor, you know, they're just making fun of me or, you know, maybe they like me so they make fun of me, okay. You know, and I just left it at that. But I think like I said, at the back of my mind, somewhere inside me, a seed was really planted.
And then towards the end of secondary school, I had my first boyfriend, inverted commas. Uh, I got dumb after like a month and a half for not being pretty enough, for not being hot enough. Like, that hurt. That was like, okay. Then that's where I started to feel like, okay. Like, because, you know, I'm not your typical, like, long hair, gentle, quiet, lady, very ladylike makeup kind of girl so and then after that he was like uh okay i'm holding your hand now but if i let go of it right it means my friends are around uh so you just walk away first and then like after i'm done then i'll come back and look for you so actually he was ashamed of being with me or being seen with me that hurt me quite a bit because then it made me feel like like okay is it because like guys prefer a certain type of girl because he like that because after that he told me like okay like you know i just like apparently like he's been telling people like how what his requirements or what he would like to have in a girlfriend and then like when they see me it's like it's not exactly what he said I was like does it matter like so you tell people you like Barbie doll but then you're going out with Polly Pocket it's fine you know it's fine right I, I don't know like does it matter like really what you tell others or like even you know what I mean why can't you just tell them that you change your mind or like there's something else about me I don't get it then that was where I got a bit upset because like Okay, you're just like judging me completely based on my appearance. Bye. So, for the first, for that 10 years of my life, I was in a girls' school. I mean, girls' school still not too bad. And then you go to junior college, and what happened? Got boys. And then that's where, like, you feel even more insecure because, like, all the pretty girls get, like, um, all the attention, you know, everyone's like, yeah, you see, uh, top boys, girls, and then you're just like, okay, lor. And then you, I, um, I got bro zone a lot. I think it's also partly cause of my personality. Um, so I got bro zone a lot. So, like, even the, like, the guys I like, then I'm like, huh, okay. So, in the end, you go, like, the girly girl type. I'm like, I don't know. It's like, why? Why? Why, like, why do guys not appreciate, like, the sporty kind but maybe you know maybe it wasn't that maybe my own insecurity about myself maybe they sensed you know some people they just like confident girls or they just like people who are very sure of themselves but maybe there was something about me yeah so they'll make it then uh, boys you know boys being boys they'll make fun of you even more so I got a lot of nicknames in in JC Uh, I was on the school cross country team so I was still um, competitive you know but then they'll say things like, oh, uh, were you doing your 2.4 run just now? Because, like, we felt tremors. Yeah, yeah. So they'll say things like that. And then, I mean, it's a joke. It's really a joke. Like, if, if I get angry at them, they will stop it. Uh. But the thing is, I didn't get angry. I actually would egg them on. I will actually, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, yeah, which, what scale was it? You know, I will actually add in, you know, and, and amplify the joke, you see. So then they found it even more fun. Because like, hey, we disturb her, uh, you know, she doesn't get angry, you know. In fact, she adds to it. Then it becomes very funny, you see. Or, or they'll say things like, um, something about like me being a tree trunk because like, I got no waist. Or, or like being like a tanker because I'm very big, you know, like things like that. Like. Then I have very many nicknames like Cheryl Piggy Day, uh, Pinky Pocky. Again, because I like the colour pink. Uh, Pockerling Ling. So anything to do with like pink, pigs. Yeah, so I got a lot of nicknames then. Uh. Um, didn't date anyone then. Not surprising, but uh, yeah, then that was the period where I think I really started to feel very, very insecure of myself. Like, it's really brought over from like that first, you know, I got dumb incident and then, and it's even worse now because like,
how come no one asks me out? How come girls get flowers and chocolate? When you're a teenager growing up and trying to find your place in the world, coming to grips with your insecurities is probably one of the toughest challenges that you can face. You become obsessed with what other people are doing, what they think of you, and whether or not you actually fit in. In most cases, we get so caught up in our own minds that we act out before eventually growing out of it. Maybe we become rude to our parents, or maybe we skip school and pick up smoking and drinking. In Cheryl's case, however, because of her previous relationship experience and her continued encounters of being bullied, her insecurity would start to manifest in a different and arguably more extreme manner. So after I was in cross country and track, so after the last. Inter-school competition. Uh, then we would go on study leave already because we're just preparing for A levels. So that was the period where I started to. Actually, I that was when I hit the darkest point of my um body image issue. So because I was at home, um, I could I went to run twenty k every morning, six k in the evening, and then do like two to three hours of kickboxing. I'll play this like pirated. DVD thing on my TV, and then I'll do it for like two to three hours. So I'll do that every day. Yeah, because I just I remember I'll tell the boys because they always make fun of me. I'll tell, then I'll say something like, "One day if I become a supermodel, I'm not going to acknowledge you, uh, or something like that." You know? Then they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." We wait for that day. You know? Um, yeah. So I did that every day, and I refused to eat. I didn't want to drink water. So so um. Of course, of course, you lose the weight. You see, because you are um, output versus input, right? And then I will intentionally run at noon, where it's the hottest. I'll be wearing my pee attire, and I'll put on like, an extra jacket and a pair of track pants, just so I'll perspire more. And in those days, like I couldn't afford the MP, the early MP3 players at that time, so I would burn CDs and I'll carry the this man in my hand. I'll just go for like how many hours out there and back. Um, yeah, I just kept doing that for like nearly three months, so I lost like twenty over kg in that three months. I wasn't eating, so and then I was weighing myself like almost every hour. Like it's, it was just so obsessive. Um, I was just so fixated on the numbers on the scale. I just really wanted to keep pushing now, pushing now. So from like sixty five upwards, I went all the way down to like forty five and below. Like it was quite drastic. Like really, really bad. And then because I was starving myself, your body will naturally get hungry. So then I will go and binge. That's when my binge eating started. So I'll go and like find like a large packet of like sugar sugar coated nuts. Like oh my god! And then after I eat the whole thing, you go and turn around and look at the calories. You're like oh oh, the whole packet was like two thousand calories. Now I'll feel so guilty. Now I'll go, force myself to go and run again, like even though I didn't want to, because like I went to stand on the scale and then you're like. Oh my god! Because when you eat suddenly like all these carbs, then your body will store water, will retain water. Wow! So then I will just go and force myself to first part. So every time like, I eat something, I'll go and exercise. Eat something, I'll go and exercise. Um, it was really over exercising and under eating severely. So my period didn't come for seven months. Uh, and that's a an indicator because like I always feel that if you're healthy, um, your period should at least come. There's no reason for it not to come lah. Um, your body's lacking nutrients and all that. So this is one of the things that goes wrong first because unless you are 
pregnant, we don't really use the reproductive system. So, uh, yeah, so it didn't come for seven months. Then I became a very pale green colour. Like, my complexion was... Yeah, like, you look at me, you just know, like, wow. Like, she looks so... Like, it wasn't a healthy thin, you know? It was... I just looked very pale and sickly. Like, you could tell that I was doing something myself. But then I got very angry with my friends. If they tried... If anyone tried to show concern, I'll get very angry at them. So, the thing is, ironically... When you are struggling like that, the people that are closest to you are the ones that you don't want to listen to. So my parents tried. I mean, they, but I think they also didn't know how to help. So they would say things like, oh my God, you look like a skeleton. And then they'd be like, what do you want to eat? And then the more I said, the more I don't want to eat. So I didn't touch rice for like many, many, many years because I felt like rice was an enemy. Then they wanted to send me to a psychiatrist or psychologist, but I refused to because in my mind, like, I'm not sick. So they couldn't do anything. They really didn't know what to do. And then the thing is, when I, because I keep weighing myself every day, wow, it was very, very, it was crazy. So then when I see that, put on weight in a sense that the, 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 the needle, uh, sorry, the digits went out a little bit, right, because I ate something, then I'll get very upset at myself. Or like if I broke the starvation okay I'm supposed to like not eat right and I cannot I cannot take it anymore so I'll go and eat something and then I'll end up overeating because I think boys like oh my gosh she's eating when when you're in this binge eating mode right you lose control of yourself you just keep reach out for anything and everything that inside that is inside and then you just wolf everything down and then after that you'll feel super guilty uh, I think my record for a binge was five tubes of Tim Tams uh, one tray of Ferrero Rocher, the 36 pieces one, one, the whole tin of the butter sugar cookies, the the one with the sugar on top one, the blue tin, the whole tin, and two tubes of Pringles. I ate all of that in one sitting. You just lose yourself, really. It's very scary. Then after that, I'll feel so guilty because like, oh my God. Like, you know, maybe you ate clean the entire week to lose like half a kg and you just put back like 2kg in this like one sitting, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And then I'll start to get very angry with myself. So I'll start to scratch myself like in the mirror. I'll just start scratching the sides of my face, scratching my hands until I started bleeding because it's like punishment, you know, like why, why the hell do you do that? You know, like why do you, you know, you're doing so well. Why do you suddenly break this? Um, and then on one occasion, my sister, actually, my younger sister actually walked in on me hurting myself. And then she didn't, because she's five years younger, she didn't understand. So she got shocked and then she started crying also. That's, so there was a fleeting moment where I was like, oh, I'm actually hurting others. You know, you think it's a very individual and very personal journey. Like it's you and your weight, it's you and your body. But you don't realise that it actually affects everything around you and everybody around you, the way you behave, the way you interact with others. I was such a horrible person to be around. Like, I lost a lot of good friends at that period of time. Uh, one of them actually dared to come up to me and say, like, hey, you you lost your character. Like, like you're not charity anymore because you are not fun to be around with. You know, like, usually last time, like, I'll be like, maybe, oh, yeah, we're going to have a party. Let's call her. Then now it's like, huh? Like, if we call her, she's going to come. She's going to start holding up every packet of chips and telling us how many calories are in there. And then she's going to say no. As extreme as these behaviours may sound, perhaps the most disturbing fact was that Cheryl went through all of it in a span of just three months. Following this period, her mental resolve broke. She could no longer handle the starving nor the vigorous exercise routines any longer, and through binging gained back all the weight that she had lost in just one month. 
Unfortunately, this did not do much to deter Cheryl from her weight-obsessive behaviors. During university, she would try out other methods such as slimming centers, slimming pills, Bikram yoga, and many others. Some would work, some would fail, her weight would move up and down and up and down, until finally, her body just could not take it anymore. So, somewhere in like mid-twenties or late-twenties, my metabolism just went, okay, you know what, bye. It just died on me. Died on me in the sense that like the weight just kept coming back. I think, you know, with age and, and also the body just goes, pff, like I started to get eczema, uh, hair loss. Like the body just started to go haywire. You know, because like you are not feeding the right nutrients and then you've been, you're destroying yourself because you're forcing yourself again to like perspire every day in this heat and not eating. So the weight actually came back like, I think every few months, 5kg, 5kg, 5kg. Eventually, I went back to, like, the 65, like, where, I, where it all started. Then I was like, oh, no, I'm back to, like, the heaviest again in my life. Then I was like, oh, and I didn't want to do any more yoga. I didn't want to run anymore. I really didn't know what to do. So that's where I started. I think I gave up myself. Like, I really went, you know what, I'm just going to be fat forever, fine. When you do that to yourself, right, when your self-esteem is so low, it actually spirals down into other parts of your life. So, for example, like, I was in toxic relationships. So, even if the guy is not treating you well, you are, you think it's okay because you feel like as long as someone wants me, that's good enough. So, my validation was based on others. Like, at work, for example, you know, you if someone, like, takes credit for your work or you, or you you just feel like, oh, you know, maybe that person is prettier so she deserves it more. You know, you start to feel like that. You find excuses for yourself by thinking that it's because you are either not pretty enough or not pretty as her or, yeah, or, like, you didn't get this job because, like, you're not pretty, you're not as thin as before. I've met women who were in abuse cases, like, their partners abuse them, um, but they think strength is staying in the relationship. They're afraid to, to step out of it um, for whatever reason. So I understand, I can relate to what they are feeling because you feel like, yeah, you see, I'm, I'm very tough, you know, I'm taking all this, but the thing is, I felt that as I gained weight, like, you know, I started to also um, not dress as much, like, you know, I would, like, stop wearing heels, stop wearing dresses, just wear very baggy t-shirts and shorts. So, obviously, the image changes, right? So then, I also didn't get as many jobs as I used to. So, I started, I started to correlate, like, was it because, like, I'm not as skinny anymore? And maybe a part of it is true, you know, maybe people were superficial, but then, you see, that's the thing. Instead of wanting to make yourself look, like, you can still go and wear pretty dresses and heels, like, it's fine. So, that was Cheryl at probably the lowest point in her life. Mentally defeated, physically collapsing, spiraling out of control, and losing her grip on the world around her. Ironically, however, this would also be the point where Cheryl would start to make her road to recovery. Uh, yeah, so I just like gave up myself, like, okay, forget it, I'm just gonna screw this, just be, be resigned to my fate. Until I met a friend who introduced me to a personal trainer. She said, you know, just, why don't you give exercise a try again? I was like, oh yeah. She's like, I'm really so tired of putting out hours. She said, you don't have to go and crazily run like every morning and night. I'm just telling you like, 
two times a week with the trainer, once on your own, something simple, you know, just keep it easy. So with the trainer, he introduced, so I did like my first deadlift, my first back squat. And then I was like, oh, wow, hey, that's quite cool. Ah. The body is actually quite amazing. It can lift like X amount of weight or like, oh, I can do burpees and oh, wow. Then I started to understand fitness um, and health more. And then I was like, hey, actually the body can do a lot. So in 2013, I did my first half marathon. I thought, oh, wow, the body can run for very long. Ah. No, but then, um, and I did in a decent time without a lot of training. So I was thinking like all those hours I was toiling under the sun, running 20k back then was for the sole purpose of wanting to be skinny. But when you start to give yourself a goal, like, okay, I want to compete in a certain time or something like that, there's a, the purpose to your exercise becomes different. Like, it doesn't become a chore anymore. Because now you are like, I have a goal, you know, I have my targets. So you chase this target. So your, mm, your goals become performance-based rather than appearance-based. Because last time, is I just want to run so that the digits will go down. Then after a while, you get very bored because you'll fall off track. You see, and then and then you will hit like a stagnant point. Whereas when you train properly for a sport, you will see results in different way. And then, so I was like, then I started to understand that okay, there's a lot more to the body than you realize. There's really so much the body can do. You don't have to be of a certain size to to be able to do anything. You know, like honestly, you can be you can be plus size and go and you know do pole dancing. Do ah, you know it's fine. You it's really fine. No one. Yes, there are a lot of stereotypes or like a lot of um, there will be pe- might be people judging, but you know you just have to n- just have to learn that. Um, I always feel that when people judge you, it's because they are insecure about something themselves, so they project it onto you. So you just have to be like, it's fine, you know, just be be confident about yourself. Do what you don't do because I mean, as cliche as it is, YOLO, right? Like if you don't do it now, then when? Um, so like. I started doing CrossFit, you know, like there was Olympic weightlifting in it. And then you're like, wow, now I can lift this amount of weight above my head, ah, huh? wow. Then you get very impressed with the body, you know. And then I came across, like now I'm doing Iron Man, that's even worse. Like suddenly I'm like, wow, the body is really amazing. Um, I said before, like I'll never, when I first got introduced to triathlons, I was like, who's going to do like a 3.8 km swim in a sea followed by a 180 km cycle and like a full marathon in the end it's like that's crazy like who wants to do that you know I say I'll never do that and then last year like, I did my first one and I'm doing my the next one next year so you see never say never like it's quite amazing like, I was out there for like 12 hours of course along the way you're like why did I sign up for this why am I here but when you finish you're like you forget the pain and then you go and sign up for the next one but but then it really like through sport and through fitness it helped me find my confidence it helped me see that um there's so much to your body that you realize i mean for like mothers you know like you go through childbirth and all that it's amazing what your body can do you know it can birth life like so why why do you want to spend all your time or all your effort and energy worrying about how you look or worrying about what others think of you why don't you just go and do what you can with your own body because um i always tell others that no matter how much money you have in the world, like you can be the richest person in the world, but you still cannot change your body. I cannot go to someone and like, hey, I have a photo shoot tomorrow. Can I borrow you, your this set of apps? And then I'll borrow your boobs, okay? And then you just pluck and pull yourself. You can't do that. Like, yeah, you can do like plastic surgery and stuff, but it still requires money and going under the knife. So, you know what I'm trying to say is you are fortunately and unfortunately, you are stuck with this body. You know, whether you like it or not, it's yours. It's your vehicle for life. So why don't you just 
take proper care of it, be proud of it, and just do what you can and and explore your its own limits. You know, like like now I'm like, how did I even run? And with that brings the end to today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in, and much thanks to Cheryl Tay for sharing her truly remarkable story. Having gone through periods of eating disorders myself, it was admittedly difficult listening to Cheryl recount her experiences. But when she described her recovery and how she found a new perspective of her body and exercise, just really, really warms my heart. I just had a smile on my face throughout that entire section. These days, Cheryl has also moved on to start her own body positivity movement called Rock the Naked Truth, where they share stories of eating disorders and organize events for running, swimming, and a whole bunch of other activities. If you or someone you know currently suffers from body image issues or eating disorders, do reach out to them for support and advice. Links will be in the description. Please, please recognize that you are not alone in your suffering, and that there are others out there like you. Who will accept you wholeheartedly, just as you are? With that being said, the Screwed Up Moments podcast is brought to you by the Singaporean Social Enterprise Happiness Initiative, an organization that advocates for happiness and well-being through their message that happiness can be a choice. Production and editing was done by me, Danny Cordy, on behalf of Fable Productions, with assistance from Clarissa Wemple and executive producers Simon Liao and Sherman Ho. Music used throughout the episode was from Blue Dot Sessions, and the theme song was composed by Rico Lowe and Julian Law. If you enjoyed listening to the Screwed Up Moments podcast, you can help out the show by sharing it amongst your friends, or by subscribing and leaving a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Otherwise, if you have any questions, suggestions, feedback, or if you have your own screwed up moment story to share, you can drop us a message through the email sumsgpodcast@gmail.com or through the various social media links in the description. Once again, this has been your host Danny for the Screwed Up Moments podcast, reminding you that it is okay to fail and it is okay to try again. <laughs>